You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's in the Old Testament. You can go on a smartphone. You can look it up on Google. Or we have Bibles in the back for you. Feel free to grab one. And uh, man, it's our gift to you. If you need one, you can take one with you. Uh, tonight, we're going we're gonna to do a message. I'm calling the message Hard Times. Hard Times. Exodus 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. And so this is going to be a way of introduction of the book to give you a lot of history, context of really where the people of God are at in this book of the Bible. And it's this new series, like Laura, my wife, said, the book of Exodus, this start of a new book. And so I really want to give context, historical context, and sort of just ground us where this book of the Bible is in the Bible. And so Exodus literally means a going out or departure, a going out or departure. And it is this great story of God's people going out from one land to where God wants to take them. The book of Exodus provides a historical account of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt's cruel slavery. Now, if you're like me, a little cynical of the past, you may think, okay, um, what is that relevant to my life? Egypt, right? The Middle East, you don't even think about Egypt. They're not even a world power. Well, at the time, they were. They were the, the, the leading power, the world leaders of the day. And we get a picture of this. Uh, if you look at things like the Great Pyramid of G G uh, Giza, is that what was it? G-I-Z, yeah, G it's the, Giza? Yeah. Giza, Giza, Giza. I'm going to do a lot of those type of pronunciations with all these He's the old school Hebrew words, okay? Uh, Giza, um, let me give you some facts about that. You may want to Google this later, but I want you to think about, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. It's uh, still standing today. It's about 50 stories high, and it was built around 2560 B.C., so you know how sometimes we criticize the past, especially historians or people like, and oh, those people must have been so stupid with this culture, that culture, like they didn't even have the internet. They built pyramids. They built amazing things. They had technology just looked different, and they were the world leaders of the day. And so this book was written at a time where these weren't just dumb Egyptians in the middle of the desert. They were the world leader, and they had technology as far as medicine, as far as um, agriculture, as far as uh, you know, engineering. These things that actually, are we still use some of these things still today. Okay, And so about the time, scholars sort of have two different views of when Exodus was written about these Egyptians. Um, it's either 1260 B.C. or it's 1446 B.C. I lean a little bit more towards the date around 1446 B.C. because uh, in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, Solomon, it says that Solomon reigned um, 840 years after the Israelites were set free from Egypt. So we know what date the temple was built when Solomon reigned. If you do good math, you just take away 480, and you get around 446 B.C. So I have a tendency to think it's, it's more about that, about 3,500 years from today. Can you imagine just how old, how long, how many people have heard this story, how many Christians have gone back to this ancient text 
But the specific date really doesn't matter because God wants to illuminate revelation and truth about who he is through this book. And so we recognize that this book is scripture, uh, meaning it's inspired by God for us today. It may be an ancient story 3,500 years ago, but yet the principles that we're going to learn about through Exodus as we sort of venture through it, it's actually written for us today. People that want to worship Jesus, that know the Lord and want to apply his truth to our lives. Exodus is a part of the first five books of the Bible, which is the Pentateuch or the Torah. And it's also called the first five books of Moses, this main character we're going to get introduced to in Exodus. Because Moses was the great prophet of God who wrote this book. And so Jesus actually quotes the books of Exodus as real teachings. You're going to see and hear some amazing miracles, some history, and some God move in supernatural ways. And Jesus says, no, that is a real story. This isn't just a fable, so we would learn principles. This actually happened. And this story is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. And Jesus says it is real, it is Scripture, it is actual event in Mark chapter 7, verse 10. In Mark chapter 12, verse 26, he references these stories as if they are true because they are. And they give us attributes of who God is as Moses pins down these things and passes us on to the next generation. And so we see this departure, Exodus, as scripture, as important for us today as when it was written. Now, a simple breakdown of the book, sort of uh, two and two, two big sort of sections because it's 40 chapters. We've done some series of the Bible that have been like Philippians, with the little epistle, four chapters, four weeks. We're not going to do that with Exodus. We need time to study, to get the context. Even though it is narrative, so there will be parts where you can just read literally a chapter and it only takes five minutes. You're like, awesome, great. However, it's going to take time. In the first 18 chapters of this book, they provide the story of God's deliverance to the Israelites from the Egyptian people. And then it moves into them establishing a new people, a governance, and all this different stuff. And really in 19 through 40, it shows the glory of God on Mount Sinai as he gives the people the law of God. And he establishes the tabernacle and the priesthood and just how do we govern our lives in this massive group of people to worship him and not false gods. And so, yes, this will be a long book study. Uh, it will take long, but it's one where we want to focus on this series I'm sort of calling God Redeems. God Redeems. As we get into this book, I want to give you some important reasons why we would even come to Scripture, and especially this story being an Old Testament ancient story that's found in the, uh, the, the Old Testament as we believe in the New Testament, right? We have the, the covenant of grace. So, so, so why even study the Old Testament? Well, I came across these points after just reading and studying that I thought were really helpful and give us sort of a great framework to start this book off as we read the narrative for us as believers today, as Christians. First off is we need to know God better. You and I need to know God better. Remember, we are finite. He is infinite. And we always come to Scripture as inspired by God. Let us remember that we are, to, we are called to study Scripture, and it builds our faith as believers in Jesus. It teaches us more about God, and so too with this book of Exodus. This is why we regularly and systematically here at our church, a Redemption Church, go through books of the Bible. We want you equipped for every good work that God has ordained and predestined for you. We want to be Jesus people who are always learning 
who God is. And we get a great invitation as this story is repeated throughout Scripture. David, uh, he wrote a psalm in Psalm 66, verse 5 through 7. He gives this invitation and invites us to study it again, invites the people of God. He says, hey, come and see what God has done. Remember, God has done some great things in our lives, and he did some great things in these people's lives, and he wants us to learn and have hope and encouragement from these things. He says, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land, which we will study. They passed through the river on foot. They, uh, there did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let us not or let not the rebellious exalt themselves. And so we, we need to make sure we don't harden our hearts, exalt ourselves, but humble ourselves and continue to learn who God is. And so it's important for us to always be learning about God through his word. You know, Jesus in, in Luke 24, 20, um, what's the reference? 24, 27, after he was risen from the dead, he went up to two men and he said that from beginning of Moses to all scripture, he gave a Bible study concerning himself. That Jesus said that all scripture, including all of the Old Testament, points to him. And so we could know Jesus better through all Scripture, through this ancient story, this retelling, this Old Testament. It's a valuable, important part of our faith to get to know God. And we have a beautiful invitation from God, from His Word, to come and see. Let's study and let's, like, let's just be amazed. God parted the Red Sea. He healed. He, he proved these things through mighty works. And we get to look at these stories because they're true and they're for us today. The second thing I want us to sort of know and have a framework is not just that we need to um, know God better, but we need to know specific things about God. We need to understand God's uh, redemption better. Redemption for our own lives. You see, Exodus is a picture of the gospel, and we'll seek to understand Exodus in revelation to Jesus and his gospel and what he says. Now, redemption is a big word that we're going to unpack throughout the entire series, but let me just start you off with a simple definition, something so you can, so you can sort of whet your appetite with or get your head wrapped around it. It's this action of saving or being from sin, error, or evil. It, redemption to redeem something means it's an action of saving being from, from sin, error, evil, or to put it another way, it's regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for a payment or clearing of debt. And you're going to see just how important this definition is when it comes to our relationship with God, because there's this theological, biblical word that we see Jesus do in our lives that God redeems through Jesus. And as we look at the story of Exodus, we see how God actually uses these principles and sends Jesus to redeem us in the same type of ways. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, he says this, God, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus saves us from our error, from our sin, and he, we are getting exchanged for his righteousness for our judgment. 
Jesus is referred to as the the Passover lamb. And and as we look at these verses, it sort of invites us, the story of Exodus, to to see a foreshadowing of Christ and, and to see God, who's sovereign over all, do these things so that way when Jesus comes, we can say that is the Messiah. And now we can have freedom in him. You remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, where Jesus, he talked actually with Moses and Elijah, this great transformation. And um, Luke says that Jesus spoke about his death. And that word, his death, is the same word where we get the word exodus. That there would be a greater exodus to come for all people, not just the Israelites or the Jews, but all people. And that exodus, that freedom from slavery, would actually come from Jesus. And we're going to take a deep dive and look and see these beautiful word pictures and what that literally means. Jesus' triumph, death, and resurrection was the greater exodus that the Bible tells us that we can know, that we can experience, that we can enjoy today. One commentator said Jesus would pass through the waters of death in order to deliver his people from the bondage of their sin and take them to the new heaven and new earth. And so speaking of Exodus, we see that many commentators have many opinions and many thoughts on it because it is a fundamental, foundational book of the Bible to our faith. A few more thoughts about Exodus. The gospel appears everywhere, one commentator said, in pattern, in type, in theme development, and in foreshadowing. Another commentator said Exodus provides the primary model of redemption in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it stands as one of the keys for understanding the cross of Christ and our salvation. And so as we study this great book, this great exodus of the Israelites, we actually get a better understanding of our exodus from death to life. And it helps us understand our redemption story as well. You see, there's many similarities between these Israelites and us. If you know the story, you're going to get familiar with it. The Israelites, they were saved from the bondage of sin are from slavery. And you see, for us, we have something greater. We've been, like the Israelites, brought free from the bondage of sin and slavery to be a witness to worship God. Moses would say, let my people go. Why? To worship. And we've been cast from the dominion of darkness into light. Why? To worship God, to do the purposes and plans that he has for us. Like Israel, we were saved by the blood of the Lamb. And like Israel, we've been saved and we are sojourners in holy priesthood seeking to glorify God in word and deed. And so there's so many, so many pictures, so many typologies, so many shadows of Christ in this book. It's incredible. Lastly, we need to come to this book with this approach to draw lessons from living out our faith. So we need to understand God. We need to understand his redemption story for us, but then how do we apply that to our lives? We need to go God better, his plans and purposes, the redemption, but we also need to study Exodus to apply it. And there are some great principles and examples to follow and to avoid in the book of Exodus that we should glean from and walk in. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, speaking of the Exodus story in this book, it says, Now these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. We actually have these things written down for our instruction to learn. 
When we see people go off the wrong track, we should be like, let's not do that. Or if they go this way, we should say, let's do that. There are a number of actual practical lessons and topics that we could learn and will learn from our study in Exodus. You know, this book deals with a lot of relevant uh, relevant issues that we face today. I mean, we're going to start right now taking care of the unborn, racism, discrimination, murder. Uh, How about how God can use ordinary people? The importance of singing his praise. This book deals with the nature of true community and what that looks like. Or how do you rely on God's presence daily? Uh, For a leader, the delegation, the need to take counsel from others. Or just simply obeying God's word. And this primary big issue of spiritual warfare and the issue of idolatry and true worship. These are all subjects and things that we practically deal with and wrestle with today. And so this book of Exodus will seek to understand God more, his redemption, and apply these truths to our lives practically. And so let's jump into our study today as we continue in the context of the book so I can give you more context uh, when just with the start of the book about the condition of where the people of God are. But here's the big idea. The big idea for today is this. The time of the book and what we're reading about, it was a hard season or hard time for God's people. We're going to jump into a season where it's just difficult for God's people, the God's people that he loves, that he cares about. But we're going to learn that God can still work and he can still redeem in our struggles, in the hard times. And so Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we'll read this section. I'm just going to read a little paragraphs at a time to get through the story. And I will do my best to butcher some of these names to give you a smile. Well, these are the names of the son of Israel, verse 1 says, who came to Egypt with Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zelobon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Talali. It's like when I say Naphtali, but it's not. It's not Italian. It's, It's Hebrew. So Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Again, this is Moses giving us the context of this book. Joseph, uh, Jacob's son, it says, was already there in Egypt. Then Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. Now, what I'm going to be doing a lot in this series is reading texts of the Bible, summing it up, give you context. These first seven verses teach us that Exodus is really a sequel of Genesis. I know most people don't like sequels. This one's actually awesome, okay? Because it really just bleeds into the Genesis story, and the story continues. Moses wants us to know this about the story as we start in the context of the book. God is faithful to his word and he does exactly what he promised. God is faithful to his word. He does exactly what he's promised. Because as you read the story of Genesis, you see a covenant with Abraham to create God's people, this nation, this great nation that he's going to promise. But it starts with Abram and Sarai, turning their name into Abram and Sarah, and this great covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. And this promise, the Lord said to Abraham, and I will make you a great nation. Okay? And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a covenant that he made and reestablished with Abraham over and over again. And in Genesis chapter 12, it's a very important thing because God made a covenant with Abraham, a promise to him that he would become a great nation and through his people, all nations would be blessed. And we know, of course, because the blessing would come through the Messiah, Jesus. And they were throughout this nation to give more promises to next generation and to David and to other people about this. And now when we come to Exodus, it continues talking about God's relationship with his people and this great covenantal purpose of God. This plan to redeem, this plan to save, this plan to bless. And he's going to do it through people because he loves people. This promise remains and is true in the book of Exodus. And so as you read Genesis, you start to see Abraham actually have a, a miracle child, Isaac. And then Isaac has children, uh, Jacob. And so we start seeing there's this God called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob would have his name changed after he wrestles with God uh, for a blessing in, in Genesis chapter 32. And his name would be turned into Israel. Israel. And Israel, or Jacob, would have 12 sons the sons that we just read about. Joseph was already there, but these sons came, and they are known as the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're getting a lot of fun, found, funda, fundamental, foundational information about the Jewish nation, Israel, and the context. Well, the book moves on in Genesis and reminds us that God throughout each generation is faithful. This is important for you to know. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because he's going to be faithful to our generation and our kids' generation and the next generation, right? He's a faithful God, and he gives this promise to Jacob or Isaac, I mean uh, Israel, in Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. He says this to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation indeed, an assembly of nations will come from you. And kings will descend from you. Sounds pretty prophetic, pretty clear, like a fundamental promise. It's not really that hard. It's just hard to believe because it's like, okay. And so Jacob has these sons, and we see the promise start to be fulfilled in the book of Exodus. We're going to read in chapter 12, verse 37, that their actually number expands to about 600,000 men plus women and children. Scholars say it could be at least up to 2 million people or more that this nation would evolve and come. But the text says it started now with only 70 people coming to Egypt. So one may ask, well, how did they come to Egypt? Thank you for asking. You continue to go through Genesis. It's an amazing story. In fact, we don't have a Bible reading plan, but you may want to actually start with the book of Genesis because we're going to be in Exodus for so long to just sort of study and get familiar with the story because the next character is uh, um, Jacob's son, Joseph, in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. He has, goes through all this different stuff. I'm not going to give you any spoiler alerts. There's a lot of great details in there. But I will say this, in the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers after they sold him to slavery, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's an incredible story. You've got to check out the details. It will build your faith. That's just a little teaser for you. 
Movie one. Now we're in the sequel, right? And this is really, he's mentioning Joseph, he's mentioning Jacob, or our Israel, he's mentioning the sons, and he's saying, hey, now there's 70 people, they've come to Egypt for help, and now God is going to fulfill this covenantal promise of becoming a nation. The text wants to reassure us that God's character is good, and what he says goes, because we are about to learn this nation is about to go through a very hard season. God's word is going to be true. He'll do what he says. But he's going to do it in the context of something that you and I do not like. A trial, a hardship, pain, and suffering. Verses 8 through 14. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt. So it's not the same time Joseph is alive. Joseph died. They're growing exceedingly bundly multiplied. This king who did not know Joseph... And he said to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. These people are blessed, man. They're, they're strong. They're, they're multiplying. He tells his people, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set task, taskmasters over them. Uh, to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built, uh, they built for Pharaoh store uh, cities, um, Pithom and Ramsey. But more they, uh, the more they oppressed, were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So what did they do? They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. We see this new season come upon the Israelites. God is multiplying. He's true to his word. And because of that, opposition comes. You know, oftentimes when we walk with God, and are doing his will, opposition will come. Hardship comes, and this is a hard season for the Israelites. A new king came, someone who did not know Joseph. This new Pharaoh told the people, deal with them shrewdly, and it's a specific uh, discrimination to this immigrant people, these Israelites, these Jews. Now, you may notice the language but let me bring it and draw it to your attention to give you a summary. In verse 11, it says, heavy burdens. Did you notice that? In verse 12, it says, oppressed. In verse 13, it says, they worked the Israelites ruthlessly and bitter with difficult labor. Verse 14 says, they ruthlessly imposed this all on them. These phrases now describe the enslavement and the situation of the Israelites. They were slaves. God was fulfilling his word to slaves, people that were having a hard time with life. It wasn't an easy life. We read in verse 12 that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. In other words, God was still faithful to this people, in a hard season. Ruthlessly oppressed, burdened, enslaved, God is faithful. Just because you go through hardship does not change the character of God. 
and the things he says and the promises to be fulfilled. It's important to know and to remind ourselves that just because we suffer doesn't mean that God is not with us. It doesn't mean that he is not for us or even good. We still have a faithful God in the hard seasons that stays true to his word and he walks with us in it. Psalm 23 reminded me of this, this famous psalm that David would write, talking about the Lord is my shepherd. And in verse 4, he says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. These were God's people. God was with them in the hardship. God is with us in the hardship. I think one of the strategies of the enemy, Satan, the accuser, is to try to have you doubt God's character when you suffer. Because our flesh, we doubt, we question. But God wants us to continue to remind us that he is with us even in the suffering, even in the hard times, that we live in a sinful and broken world. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.45 that the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Man, we're Christians. We're not exempt from going through trials, from having hard seasons. And this is why this story matters. This is their context. And guess what? This could be your context as well. And if it isn't right now, it soon will be because we all go through it. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 tells us not to be surprised if we go through trials, but to actually expect him. God's people then and now will suffer here on this earth, but God is able to be with us as we suffer and still promises to work in the midst of our suffering or in the midst of our pain. Just because the Egyptians were sinning against the Israelites doesn't mean that God wasn't God and he wasn't good and that he wouldn't judge them. And we're going to see that. There's a timing for God's will. You know, Psalm 103, verse 6 it talks about this even for us as God's people. It says, The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all those who are oppressed. God will make every wrong right, and everyone will have to give an account to him for their own actions and sins. Those that enslave, those impressed, those that deal shrewdly with others and hate and malice and all these things. And this is why you and I as Christians rest and have ease in the Lord because the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We don't have to now attack our enemies. We don't even wrestle against people. Not even against flesh and blood. We can actually pray and love our enemies and serve them because we know our God is good and he will uh, have vengeance and he will fight for his people as he's going to prove to us through this book. And so we see God's people suffer. But you ever know that, that saying, when it rains, it pours. It gets even worse. Let us continue to read. Verse 15 through 22. You would think that slavery is bad enough. You would think that all those adjectives and verbs describing it would be terrible. But look at verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Then the king Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was... Shifra and the other, Puah. I know those are awesome names. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. He's ordering murder. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives 
It says, the text says, they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male child live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives. He starts to recognize, well, there's still babies, male babies coming out. What's going on? Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, uh, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and continued to still grow very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Man, when you think things can't get worse, they do. It happens. More suffering. The king orders these two midwives, Shifra and Pua, to kill these male babies at birth. And I just want you to sort of notice the, the tension. Notice how evil this is. Like, it's not even just murder. It's murder of babies. This pharaoh didn't care about life because he was thinking about himself, his position, his status. So he would actually harm others because he was thinking about himself. He just wanted to be self-centered, so much so that he was willing to kill children. His sin of selfishness and pride was causing him to think, if I just kill the boys, then the Israelites won't grow. Then we can oppress the women and put them down, and I can take care of this problem. Here's my strategy. Let the babies die. Verse 22, Pharaoh commanded not just the midwives, but then he commands all people. He says, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. What a frightening state to be if you are a Hebrew parent at this moment in time of history. Can you imagine? So it's, you know, they can't control things. How would you feel if you became pregnant at this time? Where it's not even like an order or even like, you know, you have these God-fearing things, so it's like 50-50 with some leadership. It's the nation that wants to kill and is acting selfishly, malice and hate. And I think this would be good to pause right here and just draw your attention to the fruit of sin. And how the Bible talks about how sin leads to death. The destruction of the flesh and what selfishness actually leads to. We're reading the fruit in this story. You see, when we walk in pride, not being other-centered, only caring about ourselves, the fruit could be damaging and can have lasting effect even to a nation. We too can walk with this type of reasoning making it okay to kill babies and dismiss them. We may give it another name like abortion, but yet we walk in selfishness, not want to take responsibility, only walking in pride, trying to take care of our situation. And because we not only accept that as law or a few people, no, we have as a nation going on, there is consequences for that. All Why? Because people are worried about their status, their position, their life. Our sin, our selfishness could bring a lot of pain to other people. And we're going to see it brings a lot of pain to the Hebrew people and, and the Egyptian people. 
This was happening because Pharaoh was elevating himself. It's an important warning for us not to elevate ourselves. I think the Lord knew this when he told us verses like Philippians 2.3, where it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He gives us ways that are not sinful, that have the heart to express to express to other people and love people. You see, because as we love, we actually bear good fruit. Because in this text, you may have gone really unnoticed, but there was some love and some good fruit in this. We see these two midwives, Shifra and Puah. Verse 17 says, but the midwives, they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the children live. These two ladies disobeyed Pharaoh, so much so that he questions them and says, hey, why'd you do that? Why'd you let him leave? This was your job. You were supposed to take care of this. And they said, well, the, the Hebrew women, they're vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives come. That could have been clearly true because they weren't rushing to go and, and, and kill children. And the text says they were doing this to honor God and not Pharaoh. They weren't coming in time to make sure that they were killing the babies. So in verse 20, it says, God dealt well with these midwives. And verse 21 says, he blessed them because they feared him, and he even gave them families. You see, they decided to fear God over fearing man. They decided to be other-centered rather than selfish. And they were rewarded specifically by God because they loved other people. You know, it reminds me of a similar situation in the New Testament when Peter and John were told to preach the gospel, not to preach the gospel by governing officials. Remember that story in the beginning of Acts? In Acts chapter 4, uh, they literally said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge. But they kept on preaching the gospel. The next chapter in verse 29, chapter 5 says, we must submit to God over man. And that principle applies to us today. We have to submit and obey authorities. God set up and establishes authority in Romans chapter 4. It is something that we honor and respect. But when authorities, our culture, tells us that sin is okay, we have to make a stance and say it is not okay. When it's okay to cancel people and hate people and slander people, we say, no, it is not. They're made in the image of God. We speak words of life and encouragement. We love our enemies. And we have to follow a greater God than a pharaoh, than a king, or what culture would say. Because you know what? A culture can lead a life full of sin, this worldly, fleshly thing. But as Christians, as one that people that fear God, we're to honor God with our lives, honor God and love people. And so we see Shifra and Pua be honored by God in this text. And I keep on saying their names, even though I'm probably butcher it, or it's really weird and awkward, because I want you to know this contrast. We have Pharaoh and these two midwives, but the midwives are named by name, but not Pharaoh. We don't even know his name. You know what Shifra means? Beautiful one. You know what Pua, her name means? Splendid one. This story is 3,500 years old, and every time we read this story, we get to read these women's names. 
because they feared God. One text commentator said the women are so important that Moses even mentioned them by name, and yet we do not see the name of Pharaoh anywhere in this entire text. You see, Pharaoh is actually just like a title of a position. It's like the, it literally means translated the great house or the great lord of the house, the great one. This is why pharaohs did crazy things like this. They're worried about their position because they wanted to make a name for themselves. So they would build great pyramids and they would build cities and towns and coins all with their name so that you would remember their name. So they would have these buildings and fancy and all this different stuff and accomplishments. But yet, it's only the names that feared God are remembered. The ones that protected life and loved other people are mentioned by name and are reading about them now. Not this Pharaoh's name. And there will be more Pharaohs to come. And it was out of this hardship that Moses was born and God worked. Let's finish this message with verse 1 through 10. And see the Lord not only set up a hardship for his people, but work in this hardship. So we have this couple It says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. Should be your happiest day of your life, and it's probably the most scariest day of your life. You have this new love for a child, and now you're worried, will he die? Will he just be taken? And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide no more, or no lo- uh, him no longer, she took him a basket made of uh, bulrushes, and that's just a fancy word for saying papyrus leaves, right? These wreaths, they doubted it with um, bitterum and pitch, and so she's making this basket, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. Remember the Nile, it represented death. Babies were being thrown in it, killed by the people. So now she's having to put this child in a situation of death and hardship. And his sister, his baby sister, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him, this baby. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeves and sent her servant woman, and she took it. Then she opened it, and she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children's, or Hebrew's children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Well, well, shall I go and call you a nurse from a Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? Because she had not given birth to this child, and so she couldn't do that. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yeah, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, the one that placed this child in the the river, in the Nile. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. How many moms want to say amen to that? Pay me for watching my children. So So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, Scholars say around three, four, or five years old, whenever that weaning took place, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he came to her, and she named him Moses. 
Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. That's what Moses' name means. A reminder that God works in hardship. You see, this situation of Moses was no mistake and it was no accident. Moses should have clearly died. The enemy was attacking. There was hardship. It was awful. But Hebrews 11.23 tells us that Moses' parents, they had faith in God. They saw something special in Moses, and and he was a fine child, and they feared God over the king as well, so they hid this child for three months until they couldn't anymore. I mean, you know you can't hide a child. Children make messes, and they are loud. It's bound to come. And so this mom makes this basket to put the baby in the Nile. I can't even imagine that. And now the Nile represents death. It's a place of hardship, of pain. But through God's providential hand, he has this baby catch the eye of Pharaoh's daughter. This is like almost unreal. This is like one of them stories where we hear it so much. And and when you actually enter into the story, she's patching together a basket because she had read this first, the, the, the first story of Noah and how God could save and perform a miracle. How Noah went to the ark in a place of death, but there, there could be a way. And I have faith in God, and there's, there's no other way that can save. And so she actually places this child in the basket, and Pharaoh's daughter says it catches her eye. And, and Moses' sister's following along and says, hey, well, do you need any help with this situation? And she says, yes, go, go get a Hebrew woman. She says, I know the perfect person who can still wean this child, his own mother. And now Moses lives. He's back with his birth mom for now, for a few years. For in those foundational, fundamental years that we'll see that don't even leave Moses because he clings hold to God's word and he follows God and has been taught by his mother. God clearly was working as he takes place, a place of death, the Nile, and turns it into a place of life and salvation. And now, years later, we're about to study Moses' life. Because it was significant and God wanted us to know that this guy is a great leader, could be used by God. He freed his people from slavery. But it wasn't by his amazingness. It was because of God's grace. This should encourage us that God can work with his mysterious providential hand in our lives, in hard situation, that God works his perfect will out in amazing ways. And in order to redeem a situation or a person, Things have to be pretty bad. It was a pretty bad situation for this family. And that's exactly when God worked. And you are going to walk through some pretty bad, hard situations in this life. I'm not a prophet, but I can pretty much guarantee it. And that's exactly when God's hand can work in your life as well. He can draw something that is meant for death or evil, what Joseph would say, and use it for good. Right from the start, God wants us to have hope and remember that he is still God in the hard times. That is the context of this book. So much so, Moses' name meant to be drawn out of water. Every time the Israelites would look at their leader, they would be reminded, God can work in a hard time. Every time we mention Moses' name, you should say, God could work in my life. God can work in something that signifies death and hardship, and pain, and he could bring life, and he can do that. 
Because he works in hard situations and he redeems. God not only worked to raise up Moses and give him life to free their, his people, but later we know he would send a greater one than Moses, Jesus, to free all people from sin. John chapter 3, verse 17. We know verse 16, but 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that they might be saved through him. Jesus told us and was pretty clear that God sent him to redeem us from death, from hardship, to give us eternal life. John 5, 24, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say to you, whether, uh, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but passes from death to life. And this is why Hebrews 3, 3 tells us that Jesus has been counted worthy to receive more glory than Moses. This great prophet that we're going to look at and do a deep dive in because God would send someone greater to redeem as well because Jesus' name means God is salvation. And so every time we look to Jesus, we should say, yes, God is salvation. Every time we look to Moses, yes, God is salvation. He, would, he sends people and he raises people and he has a plan. And so we should worship God who has sent Jesus to redeem us and come into our deathful situation, our brokenness, our sin, and he would take on death himself, death of the cross, and we praise God and give him glory for that because he has a glorious and good name, and he reveals that even in our hard situations right now, we can have God work and save, and we can give glory to God. And so God tells us as we gather as the church to remember God redeems there's grace. There's a providential plan. He knows you, and he loves you, and he cares about you. And we're to partake in communion to remember that there is grace even today. And if you need redemption, your sin's forgiven. The Bible says if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, then you shall be saved. And we're going to study this great God, this great salvation that we have all throughout the book of Exodus. But the context is this. We thank God that he redeems and he works in our lives, even in hard situations. Amen? So let's pray and let's celebrate and take communion as we close. Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace, for just the start of this great story. Lord, would you continue to speak to us, minister to us for the things that you've done? We want to retell the story and apply it to our lives and learn more about you and, and come into this walking salvation of redemption, Lord. We know that you have a plan and purpose for everyone listening, God. And so we just come to you now. We want to celebrate that your sins, our sins have been taken away, Lord, in you, Christ, and you've given us righteousness, your spirit. We can walk in newness of life. You know our names. You know every hair on our head. And you want to use us for your glory. Even in our weakness, you were strong, you were working. So we bless your name, we reflect on this truth, and we thank you, God, for who you are. And it is in your great name we pray. And everyone said, amen. This is Pastor Daniel Williams with Redemption Church. Thank you so much for listening to this message. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube so you never miss a message. The mission of Redemption Church is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus, and we would love to have you partner with us. 
Feel free to share these messages with your family and friends. And also, if you'd like to donate to the ministry, go to redemptiondb.com. God bless you.